My name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to the fourth episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Before we recorded this episode, we had a long discussion about what exactly we would talk about given the impact of the coronavirus on football, but also more importantly on society as a whole. We decided that yes, we would look at the impact of coronavirus on the major European football leagues, but we also decided that we would talk about recent developments that have taken place since the last episode of the podcast. So in Spain, for example, we looked at El Clasico, we looked at the relegation battle, and we also assessed Atletico Madrid's performance against Liverpool in the Champions League. In Germany, we looked at the protests against Hoffenheim benefactor Dietmar Hopp. We looked at who Dietmar Hopp is and looked at why so many fans are protesting against him. In France, we assessed PSG's performance against Dortmund, and we discussed their um, lack of professionalism, shall we say, um, in mocking young Erlen Harland's celebration. And then in Italy, we looked at Juventus's important game with Inter Milan in front of no spectators, um, which obviously took place just before Serie A was suspended. So plenty of interesting topics to discuss. Hopefully you enjoy hearing about them. And yeah, what I would say at this moment in time is stay safe and, and, and stay stay healthy. Thank you. Hello, my name is Alistair Madden. This is the fourth episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast, joined by Michael Jones and Rudy Barlow. Thank you for tuning in to you, the listener. Uh, we it's a very interesting time in the world of football. It's a very interesting time in the world generally, quite a difficult time for society. Um, but we, we thought that it was important still to to record the podcast and speak about um, what has been going on in the world of European football since the last episode. Um, so, Michael, how are you doing? How are you keeping? Yeah, um, I'm relieved to say that I'm all well and good, thank you. And as far as I know, so is um, everybody that uh, I know at the moment. It's been, obviously, it's probably nothing. We, by the time we'd done the last podcast, it was definitely, we're definitely at a phase where we knew it was a growing issue, but I don't think we'd really anticipated we'd be at this level by the time we'd be, uh, we're recording the next podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think once I'm at the stage where, uh, where I might be self-isolating, it will be a lot of... Um, you know, a lot, a lot of reading for our podcasts to come, and uh, a lot of, a lot of listening to other podcasts and whatnot to keep me sane. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think the most important thing, um, because more and more people will start to self isolate now, uh, and I think it's it will be difficult for people, um, you know, for people with mental health um, issues in particular. For people who, who suffer from loneliness, then, you know, particularly older people as well. Uh, but it does provide an opportunity to kind of rediscover um, old hobbies, discover new hobbies. And I think for me personally, it'll, it'll give me a chance to get some reading done that I had not really had the chance to do recently. Um, so, yeah, obviously, Michael and I are currently in the United Kingdom. Barlow, you're literally on the other side of the world in South America. How, how, how are you doing over there? Uh, touch wood, all things are well. Um, I'm healthy as can be uh, after a 
24 hour long bus more or less um, but I shall unfortunately be joining you in the United Kingdom again Touchwood all things being well uh, from Sunday onwards so uh, yes well we're, it's interesting being on a sort of week to two week long delay from Europe with the coronavirus because I, I left sort of a left Florianopolis, which is a sort of a beachy resort about um well uh, yesterday morning and it was all fairly fairly normal very little coronavirus uh, related conversation but uh, rio de janeiro is a, a bit of a bit of a different kettle of fish there's a lot a lot more noticeable differences here yeah so you are you, are you in rio de janeiro just now Bob? Yep, just just arrived here this morning and um, have a flight out on Saturday. As I think we might be able to get stuck here if um, if uh, we stay much longer. I think the borders will probably shut, and so uh, thought it thought it was best uh, to um, skip our way out of South America before we get stuck and spending money to be sat in yeah. hostels. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, it's. It is. I think I just saw a headline there. It was Angela Merkel was saying that it's the toughest time for Germany since the war and since reunification. Uh, and I don't think that that's an exaggeration. I think um, it is unprecedented. I think for a lot of people our age as well, it's the first time you've ever really been faced. Even people in the generation arguably above us, um, like our parents, have been faced perhaps with something um, of this scale. But we will try our best through the podcast to, to keep spirits high and to keep bringing you interesting stories. And, and I think the best place to start um, is, is with you, Michael, on Italian football. What, what do you have to say? Would you like to start with the coronavirus and impact it's had and then we can go on to football more generally um, in Italy? Yeah, of course. I mean, so, like we said, we're not, I'm not going to touch on it too much, but just in terms of how it's shaped the league and the changes that have happened. So at the time of our recording of the last podcast, which was uh, three weeks ago now, I believe, the we were, we discussed the fact that prior to this Inter Milan uh, Juventus game, which was due to, which we've been talking about in all the episodes, um, coming up to the 1st of March when the big game was supposed to be played, that was postponed alongside six others. Um, we had already seen ground closures at that point, but not all games were behind closed doors, although it was only a matter of days before that was the case. Uh, and then we were getting to the point where we were seeing every single game behind closed doors up until um, just over a week later, which was the 9th of March, uh, which was a Monday when we had our last game in the Serie A, which was Sassuolo versus Brescia. Um, Brescia will spend this time at the bottom of the table. Jeremy Bogger uh, got the last goal in Serie A for their foreseeable future. Um, obviously, it's a really serious situation in Italy. The cases are growing rapidly. It's now, I believe, it's highest for uh, highest tally for deaths um, worldwide now. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, thoughts and prayers are going out to everyone over there um and yeah obviously we hope that you know the situation that the, there will be answers soon and there will be um, more positive news to take but in the last three weeks since we last discussed it it's um it's sadly been a very very difficult time in italy mm-hmm. and 
I, I think, you know, at the end of the, the day, football is just only a game, but it gives so many people an escape from the struggles, arguably, of daily life. Uh, and, you know, it gives people that chance to just relax and keep things in perspective. Um, but you've seen the kind of heartwarming videos, Michael, of the people in Italy from, from the balconies playing music. And I know they've, they've been edited to kind of bring in different um, sounds over the top of it. But that sort of spirit um, will, will surely um, give, you know, some sort of cause for optimism to, to the people of Italy. Yeah, absolutely. There are a real sight to be seen and it's you know it's said in history um you know when there has been really difficult times you know whether that be wars um or sort of almost like illness leading to kind of extinction events and stuff that that is when you do see some of the most beautiful scenes sort of in um in reaction to that um but yeah the yeah, the scenes have been the scenes of the scenes of the people singing have been fascinating. There's also been, um, I think it was Italian. There was a DJ uh, playing off uh, with a sound system playing off a balcony, which was pretty good as well. Although you're just wondering what the um, demographic what the demographic was <laughs> like of um, the people who were living in yeah. that um, complex. Yeah, there was there was footage as well of of um, two neighbours or flatmates. Um, Playing a game of tennis out the window of some like oh, yeah. flat, and I couldn't help but I think the caption on one of the um, one of, one of the people who tweeted the video said that they would almost certainly get a little bit too excited and reach too far, and end up falling out the the, the the window. And I think that would probably me as well. But it's just it's, it's a sort of spirit that I think, um, particularly in the United Kingdom, we will we'll need to see in the coming weeks. Um, we'll need to obviously watch the situation closely to see what the government. Um, suggest next but in terms we're, we're speaking more about society generally here um, but but in terms of moving forward Syria, Michael what, what what do you see as the future of this season and, and the ultimate outcome? Yeah there's been a lot of debate um, there's been a, what you could argue is a gender debate which you can't you know it's, you, you do criticise people for given the uh, severity of what's going on at the moment but there is obviously people are naturally going to have the motives um to do things uh the so yeah there's there's talk about there was um, an announcement today for european leagues to be completed by the 30th of june i believe um so with euro 2021 being cancelled which i'm sure we'll discuss a little bit more um so Previously, Italian Football Federation, this not the Serie A, the Italian Football Federation provided three solutions. Um, the first solution was this, the Scudetto would be unassigned, so essentially void. Um, the second solution was a standing stay as they were. Juventus would win the title. Uh, Lecce, Spal and Brescia would get relegated. And thirdly, there'd be playoffs for relegation and the title. Um, a bit unsure how that would work out. I, I think it, it was supposed to be the top four teams battle for the title as do the bottom four teams. Um, again, that was a bit of a strange one, given that Atalanta are 15 points behind Juventus um, and they're much closer to fifth than they are for first, but in these, in these circumstances, they could end up winning in Serie A. 
which I guess would be a romantic story given everything in the book, whether it would be fair for them to do so is another debate to be had um, if it were ever since that. Um, just so, with football at the moment, there is a great degree of sensitivity around all of the debates, um, given that there are quite a few high-profile footballers, um, quite a few... Yeah, definitely quite a few uh, confirmed cases, the likes of Matuidi, Regani at Juventus, um, Catrone at Fiorentina, Gabbiadini amongst others in the yeah. Sampdoria squad as well. So, um, yeah, it's very much touch and go at the moment. We know leagues are supposed to be making announcements more in the coming week. Yeah, it's... Um... I mean, in, in times like this, football arguably does does become secondary. Um, but you know, football fans will be football fans, and, and and they will want to see some sort of conclusion to to the season, without doubt. But you know, we'll, we'll need to wait and see just how effective the lockdown, um, the imposed lockdown, will will will, uh, will be. Michael, you were saying about you essentially need to wait two weeks to see how successful. The imposed lockdown will be uh, from from the time of that announcement coming out. So perhaps after the two weeks from the day of the lockdown, you know we'll, we'll begin to see uh, a decline in the number of cases, and then perhaps the society will be able to return um, bit by bit to or as close to normality as possible. We- just just wondering there, Michael. Um, out of those solutions that you put forward for City A, what do you think is the most likely to occur? Um, I mean, what what's interesting about these three is that there isn't actually one that just says suspend the league and carry on. Um, out of the three that are listed, I imagine with Juventus, <laughs> the conspiracy side of me, with Juventus just going back to the top of the table on the penultimate day of Italian football for the foreseeable future, I feel like the Scadetto would be awarded to them and careful. the relegation would be confirmed and the tables were to stay as they were. Careful, um, but, because Mario Balotelli got into quite quite the the trouble for, for insinuating the exact same thing that you're insinuating there on Instagram. So just watch what you're saying. We don't want, we don't want the Italian football and authorities coming down on us like a ton of bricks. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, obviously, like we said, we've got to deal with it with a great deal of um, sensitivity. But um, it's uh, I still think that, that that one is the most likely to likely one to happen. Uh-huh. Um, the, okay, but I do, th- I do think there is all the possibility. Wayne Rooney had actually made a really good um, comment about postponing the leagues and then having them, if, if we're in a position where we can restart them in August, September to finish the seasons then and then it leads us uh, really nicely in line till November um, where the season would finish and if we did that for the next two seasons it would work well with the World Cup being held in Qatar in 2022. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, there was also the 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 added um, element of, of a pulsating Champions League second leg between Valencia and, and Atalanta. And obviously the, the fate of the Champions, you know, like everything else, um, none too certain. that there, there was talk from UEFA of condensing it into a mini-tournament with uh, the, the quarter-finals and semi-finals just being played 
as as one-legged ties over a couple of days in Gdansk and Istanbul, with those two locations obviously being the kind of venues for the Europa League final and the Champions League final. But with the response from the Turkish authorities, or rather the lack of response from the Turkish authorities, that might not actually be the best idea. But leaving that to one side and looking at what has happened, what did you make of Atlanta's win over Valencia and in particular a quite wonderful display from Jose Pelisic? Yeah, Ilicic was fantastic as he has been. You know, he's been in the best form of his career over the last three months. There's a really good ironic comment made by Andrea Agnelli on Italian television following the game. And just to give an idea quickly what happened, two, he scored two penalties and then two goals in open play after that as they won 4-3. And Agnelli said, it, you know, given Ilicic is 32 and, you know, he's only just finding his best form now, Agnelli made the comment saying, how is it? How is it that Atalanta are in the Champions League? How come Milicic is in the Champions League? It shouldn't mean it's a disgrace that one player is having good, one good season in Italian football and now he's scoring four goals in the knockouts of the Champions League. But um, it does kind of sum up the sort of peak here. It, it, it does sum up the, uh, yeah, that Milicic has, the, the sort of, the form that Ilicic has found over the last few months. He's been um, getting people's attention with the wonder goals that he's been scoring uh, for Atalanta in some of the massive wins over the likes of Milan and Torino. And now he's um, you know, scoring multiple goals on the big stage in Europe in the Champions League. It'll be really exciting to see how far Atalanta can go in this, whatever the repercussions are. But just that their performance against Valencia uh, Ilicic was excellent, but it's important to stress that there were some serious deficiencies yes. um, noted in Atalanta, and the gloss of Ilicic's performance really probably did cover them up quite a bit when looking back on it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I personally think, Michael, that when Atalanta do inevitably come up against an opposition with A, a better defence, and B, a more consistent attack, then then Atalanta will will probably meet their match. I don't. Yeah, I think so. The defensive frailties, which were exposed by a pretty blunt Valencia attack, um, showed that against more creative and talented opposition in the latter stages, I, I think ultimately they'll just fall a bit short at the quarterfinals. Yeah. Um, going back to, to the domestic side of things, Michael, there was a really important game just before Serie A ground to a halt b- between Juventus and Inter Milan. How did that go, Michael? Yeah, so it finished 2 0 to Juventus. And earlier I'd made the joke uh, or sort of comment about the Serie A stopping at the perfect time for Juventus as Balotelli had. I'd actually say the opposite and say this is maybe the worst time if you're just talking from a purely football sense because Sarri got his tactics spot on and I think this was the best performance from Juventus under him um, in the Serie A. There is goals from Aaron Ramsey and Dybala, a lovely team goal for the second of it in front of no fans. But Juventus really outclassed into Milan, especially going into the second half. It was a bit of a um, blunt first half, but as the game progressed, Juventus really exerted the dominance with two second-half goals and Padelli got sent off for Inter Milan. Um, I think, had we, would we be going forwards with the 
uh, Serie A title race as normal. I think we would now be talk- we're, we'll now be talking about a two-horse race. I think into Milan's hopes for the title uh, with distinguish. Um, we're extinguished, sorry, by Juventus during that game. Yeah, no, it's depending on the, the ultimate outcome of, of Serie A, it, it might well prove to be kind of a, a pointless victory, but certainly if Serie A is, is going to be played to a conclusion, then that, that result will, will no doubt be an important one. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add on, on Italian football before we move on? No, I think that's everything um, for the time being. Of course, we'll be looking out for updates going forward, uh, uh, even though most of it's likely to be off the field. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if, if there's nothing else to add for the time being, we will now turn our attention to Germany and a quite bizarre turn of events in, in Hoffenheim's game against Bayern Munich. So Germany and the Bundesliga and the second uh, division in Germany have also been affected by the coronavirus with it looking like that will not reconvene until at least the first week in April, if not after that. But, uh, you know, we could talk about coronavirus all day and we've looked at it in detail with regards to Italy. But there was a particular incident uh, which, which attracted a lot of media attention. Um, before the Bundesliga was temporarily suspended. And that was the incident involving Hoffenheim's um, principal benefactor, Dietmar Hopp. Um, I don't know if you guys managed to catch any of this, did you? Uh, yeah, I did catch a bit of it. I mean, um, some of it, some of, obviously the events in the Bayern Munich game were pretty significant. The... I mean, it's a good job that I, I don't really speak any German or can translate any German, because uh, from what I've gathered, it's pretty some pretty unsavoury protests. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. in this, and of course, it's a really it's a really interesting two sided argument. I think there's a really strong case to be made, um, whatever perspective you have on the matter. Yeah, I think um, we'll start with what was said by the fans and the reaction of the fans, and then we'll take it right back to who is Dietmar Hopp and, and what is his role at Hoffenheim. So the fans, uh, this has been kind of building up to crescendo and it culminated in the Bayern Munich fans with un- unveiling um, a banner not once but twice um, in their away game against Hoffenheim. 6-0 up as well, uh, I-, I might add. And the banner essentially read, quote-unquote, Dietmar Hopp was the son of a whore. Um, and, you know, it's... It's, it's not nice, but I mean, it's not um, as bad as some of the insults and some of the discrimination which takes place, you know, week in, week out a- across European leagues. Um, but regardless of the wrongs and rights, obviously it's not, not right, but it's the reaction of the, the players and the kind of management at, at Bayern Munich on, on the field that day. So, so the, it was halfway through the second half, when the first banner was unveiled, the play was stopped, and um, Bayern Munich's kind of um, a few of their kind of uh, members of their board went across. A few of their players went across to the way fans in the way corner at the Rheinnecker in, in Sinsheim, which is where Hoffenheim play, and they pleaded with the fans to take the banner down. The banner was eventually removed. 
play then starts again but the Bayern Munich fans then unveil another banner which says the exact same thing obviously they knew what was going to happen um, and this time the referee stops playing takes the players off the field and again um, senior management at Bayern Munich are pleading with the fans to kind of take the the banner down but again the banner goes away the players come back out in the pouring rain I have to say um, pouring rain and it's the most bizarre 30 minutes of football I think I've ever watched the players then just almost in a strike of sorts just pass the ball about between themselves doing very little until the referee eventually blew the final whistle um, but what happened on the field was essentially the tip of what is quite a rocky iceberg the whole reaction to Dietmar Hopp stems from his circumnavigation I suppose of, of the 50 plus one rule in Germany whereby the fans have to have 50% plus one share um, and in terms of the, the voting rights uh, in Bundesliga clubs. And to really understand the Dietmar Hopp impact on Hoffenheim, I think it's maybe better for us to look at who he is as a person and what he ha- has brought to Hoffenheim. So Dietmar Hopp um, started out, he's an extremely successful German entrepreneur, um, graduated from university as a certified engin- engineer and he worked for IBM uh, but then in 1972 he then along with four associates founded the SAP software company um, and, and, and SAP is now if it would eventually become the world's third, third largest IT group after Microsoft and Oracle so as you can imagine Dietmar Hopp is one of the founding members of that company it, it is not short of of, of a quid or two and he used to play for Hoffenheim a considerable time ago as a youngster when Hoffenheim was still an amateur club um, and you know nobody really had heard of them um, but he, he Hopp then retires from, from playing and, and gives it up um, and he decides you know what I'm going to I'm going to take this club from you know essentially just a small kind of and community club, you know, there are thousands of these clubs across Germany, um, and he, he decides, I'm going to take them to, to the next level, and the next level beyond that, so for, between 1990 and 2001, Hoffenheim were then propelled, thanks to Hopp's investments, from the 8th to the 3rd tier of German football, um, but that was without too much investment really from Hopp, there was quite significant investment there, but compared to what was to come, in relative terms, it really wasn't a lot, but then when it comes to 2005, Dietmar Hopp really starts to plough his money into the club and this is where it gets interesting and this is where the, the parallels between Hoffenheim and the Red Bull project um, arguably become a lot clearer. Ralph Rangnick was appointed as head coach of Hoffenheim and Rangnick obviously has links to both Salzburg and Leipzig. Um, he is appointed as head coach and along with Hopp's financial investment and Rangnick's technical know-how, for me Ralph, Ralph Rangnick is one of the most intelligent men in, in, in world football. He is so good at what he does and he played a key part in what for some is a fairy tale story but for others is an absolute nightmare and represents everything that's wrong with the modern game. So Rangnick comes in and along with considerable investment, Hoffenheim get promoted to the second tier in 2007 and then to the Bundesliga in 2008. And Hopp in that time obviously he's, he's bankrolling kind of player signatures he also builds two stadiums and a modern training centre, a state-of-the-art training centre at that. Um, and in total, I think Hop 
I was reading is believed to invest in about 350 million euros in the club, which is um, no small fee. So I would I would add at this point that in recent years, due to income from selling players, and they have now got a really sustainable model. At first, it wasn't sustainable, but you know they've really worked hard at the off the field kind of development with the whole kind of football operations side of things, and they aren't relying on Pops Cash and haven't been so for several years now, but. What this represents for a lot of people is, you know, the commercialisation of modern football, and particularly in, in Germany, where you have this 50 plus one rule. So essentially, club members are supposed to own at least more than half of the shares. That's 50% of the deciding votes plus one more. But there is a loophole, if, if you like, that allows individuals like Dietmar Hopp to kind of circumnavigate this, this rule. Um, and it's the same at Bayer Leverkusen because of the links to the Bayer Pharmaceutical Company as well. They don't strictly adhere to the 50 plus one rule either. Uh, and it, it's just, it's, it's as if the kind of football authorities have said, ah, yeah, okay, we've got this rule, but yeah, you, you've put a lot of time and effort into this, so you don't need to adhere to it. But that, for, in my opinion, undermines um, everything that this is about. So obviously, that there is bad blood and one club which holds Hoffenheim in particularly ill regard is Borussia Dortmund and there, there are reasons for that um, this goes back to 2008 when Hoffenheim made their debut in the Bundesliga uh, in 2008 some of the Dortmund fans displayed the banner with Hawks likeness in the crosshairs of a sniper's rifle and we've seen that again in 2020 um, with certain fans um, and, and, and even the CEO of, B, of Dortmund at the time, Hans-Jakim Balske, um, said that Hoffenheim were a test tube club and he had called on the German Football League to investigate Hoffenheim. And then in 2011, the, the kind of Dortmund-Hoffenheim scuffle, if you like, reared its head once again. Um, when During the match in, in Hoffenheim, Dortmund fans um, had been subjected to background noises which had been kind of put in place um, to kind of drown out any kind of anti-Dietmar Hopp chanting. Um, and, and since then, we've seen anti-Hopp banners um, from, from Dortmund fans. And if you're thinking, oh, this is, this is, a, this is a shame for Dietmar Hopp, yes, he's done a lot of good for Hoffenheim. He, he seems to be quite a philanthropic individual, but this is one of the richest men in Germany who took five Dortmund fans to court and sued them for insulting him Bearing in mind how rich this man is, taking five fans, I don't know the, the kind of wealth or otherwise of these fans, but he takes them to, to court and he wins his case because he recorded them in secret, insulting him. So that, again, fuels the fire of hatred, I suppose. Um, and it's maybe not so much Hop as a person he don't like, but more what he represents. And it's kind of reared its ugly head once again in 2020. And partly that's because of the kind of collective punishment Dortmund fans as a result of their actions whether you agree with them or not have been banned for travelling to Hoffenheim away games for two years so that's essentially two games and any other kind of uh, cup um, games that, that that might entail so that is every single Dortmund fan being, being punished for the act perhaps that's of a few representing the fan base as a whole I'm not sure I, I can't speak for the Dortmund fan base but in 2018 or 2017, the DFB had said that they would not, you know, they would not resort to collective punishment. So 
for many fans, they're angry at Dietmar Hopp, but they're also now angry at the German footballing authorities. So we've got this really kind of perplexing and, and, and taut um, situation whereby Dietmar Hopp um, is, is really um, at the heart of all, but also the footballing authorities. And I think what, what really annoyed me was that, you know, the three-step protocol being implemented, yes, um, when a rich billionaire was being um, insulted, but yet when you have incidents of racial abuse with Jordan Tonoriga, I, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his name, but he um, was um, racially abused in the game between Hertha Berlin and Schalke, and he ended up being sent off for supposedly overreacting to um, what was quite clearly racial abuse. So when you compare that response to the response of Dietmar Hopp essentially being called um, the son of a whore, it's not a nice term at all, but regularly players are subjected to the same abuse. Um, Manuel Neuer gets the exact same insult every time he is um, he goes back to play against Schalke because obviously they're still quite bitter towards him for, for leaving and, and the, the way that he did leave when he went to Bayern Munich. Uh, Timo Werner gets the, the same insult regularly because many fans see him as um, being a diver and obviously the, the added um, aspect of him playing for um, Rassen Ball in Leipzig as well. So a lot of people were just angry at the, cons- the lack of consistency and the double standards from the footballing authorities. And obviously that then um, snowballs into, you know, more, you know, wider abuse against Dietmar Hopp. Dietmar Hopp's almost a figurehead for this frustration from the fans. So I, I, I think what we need to see moving forward is if, if, if the footballing authorities and the three-step protocol, you know, if that's going to be implemented whenever there is an insult, um, against you know Dietmar Hopp or, or other similar owners, um, not that there are many of them in, in, in Germany because of the 50 plus rule. But if we're going to see um, the three step protocol being implemented, if we're going to see collective punishment for fans who dare to voice their opinion, um, maybe not in the most complimentary terms, but still voicing their opinion, I'm not saying if I agree with them or not. But if we're going to see punishment there, then there also needs to be punishment when there is incidents of, of racial discrimination. There also needs to be punishments when there's incidents of homophobic discrimination. Any form of discrimination, they, they need to approach it um, uh, in, exact, in, in, in the same way uh, if, if you want to be consistent and you want to be credible. I, I, I don't know what your guys, you, you guys, what, what your opinions are on them, but for me, it's just quite frustrating, the inconsistencies and the kind of lack of understanding of just why people are getting so wound up by this whole situation. But really, it is an extremely interesting position. If, if I was speaking to, to one of my friends the other week there, and I was saying that arguably if Dietmar Hopp had done the same thing in Scotland or England, see if Dietmar Hopp had taken a, like a ninth tier, not Dietmar Hopp, but his, his English or Scottish equivalent, had t- um, played for, you know, say, a ninth tier side, um, as a youngster, had um, built up his own wealth and had invested gradually at first and then put more and more money into the side and eventually taking what was a ninth-tier side into the Champions League. I think the reaction here would be quite different. But I suppose with Stalford City, you're kind of seeing that there's, there's not actually that much appreciation for it. So I'm not quite sure how it would be received um, here. But um, again, I, for me, I don't think it's really what... Hop has done, so to speak, but it's more the way that he has kind of, um, you know, 
what's a loophole and, and what is a really highly appreciated system in Germany with, with the 50 plus one rule. But I've spoken quite a bit here about the kind of political aspects of, of football. Hoffenheim, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I, when I was on my year abroad, I went to watch them a number of times purely because, you know, I think Julian Nagelsmann was the, was the manager at that time and the football that Hoffenheim played was just delightful. Andre Kramaric um, was one of the... He's a frustrating player, but Nagelsmann just got the most out of him and he was beautiful to watch. Um, and the football as well was free-flowing. It was always entertaining. Um, and I didn't really fully appreciate the the kind of what was going on behind the scenes at Hoffenheim. But still, they, they, they are arguably a fairy tale club, but they, they have found themselves at the centre of this because of other issues. Um, but yeah... Having looked at one arguably test tube club, as one as, as some people might call them, um, we'll consider another uh, what, what club which could arguably be described as a test tube club, and that's Racing Ball in Leipzig, of course now managed by Julian Nagelsmann, who's gone from Hoffenheim to Leipzig. And they progressed in the Champions League against Tottenham Hotspurs. Michael Barlow, did you get the chance to watch that game? Yeah, I, I didn't. Oh no! Um, sorry, I'll keep this one short. The um, yeah, they uh, they completely outclassed Tottenham. I think I think the tie was effectively killed by the uh, early goal in the second leg. But I think I think there is an element of a shame to it and a what if because you know Tottenham are a team that are so dependent on Kane and Son. Um, it would have probably been a much more competitive time. We probably would have learned a bit more about yeah. Leipzig's European credentials and stuff from that time. It's it's a great win for them to have over Champions League finalists, but yeah, I think that's maybe my take on it. It's a bit difficult to grasp um, what exactly their credentials are in this competition so far, as their run so far has been pretty favourable. Yeah, it's been it has been kind, but what I would say is 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 that Nagelsmann once again has shown his ability to inspire a really mature performance from his players. I said the same thing after the picked up the 0-0 draw away to a kind of rejuvenated Bayern Munich under Hamzy Fleck. I thought that was a really mature performance, really disciplined and, and was impressive to watch. And again against Spurs, you know, the 3-0 scoreline, I don't think it flatters Leipzig at all. Um, but at the same time, I, I agree with what you're saying, Michael. It was a depleted Spurs. I know that Mourinho sounds like a broken record these days, but it was a depleted Spurs side and had that Spurs team had the, you know, their first team options or more of their first team options available to them, I don't think it would have been quite as straightforward. I still would have fancied Leipzig to progress a little. Uh, I think, um, oh, you go, Barlow? I think for me the interesting thing was the, the sort of contradiction between Mourinho and Nagelsmann. And like you're saying, Mourinho is sort of the, the tired shadow of a figure who was once the face, the forefront of management and football, and he was the new school of thinking. And whereas you've got Nagelsmann now, who again is young, fresh faced, he, he's very much not, not quite got a charisma as the same charisma as Mourinho, but he represents the sort of new generation of managers coming through and the way of thinking. And I thought the uh, yeah, the contrast between those two was uh, very much um, uh, impacted me on a lot, impacted upon me a lot, yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I really think that Julian Nagelsmann's a fascinating character. I think him and Ralph Ranić are arguably the kind of future of, of, of football coaching, of football management. And 
Marco Rose as well at Munchen Gladbach. I think those three figures are just fascinating managers to kind of study. And in future episodes of the podcast, uh, we, we will look, it's fully my intention to look more um, in, in more detail at Julian Nagelsmann and his journey um, because it is really interesting. So that's one that we will look at. I will just finish up with German football uh, with a brief um, word on the fact that Julian Nagelsmann, when, when Jose Mourinho won the Champions League with Porto in 2004, Julian Nagelsmann was only 16 years of age. And I think that really hits home the kind of what you're saying, Paolo, it's kind of out with the old being Jose Mourinho and in with the new being Yuli Nagelsmann. And I think his career, I think Nagelsmann seems a lot less stubborn than Mourinho. He's a lot more willing to adapt. And Mourinho is very studious, but arguably is just a bit too stubborn for his own good, whereas Nagelsmann's similar levels of that kind of like, um, so determined and, and so committed to his job and also willing to adapt. So, really, he is one to watch with interest. If we don't have uh, anything more to add on German football, I think this represents the perfect moment to turn our attention to Spain through Barlow. So, to Spain and a quite brilliant result for Atletico Madrid at Anfield. Barlow, what, what did you make of that outcome? Yeah, first phenomenal result for Atletico and Simeone, and it, it can't go underestimated the achievement of a team that's floundering, to be honest, uh, in its own league. It's not basically, in my opinion, knocking out the best team in the world by by a distance. Um, yeah, it was very impressive. I think this wasn't the same same Atletico that faced up to Liverpool in the first leg. They weren't nearly as good, but they um, they definitely benefited from. From Liverpool's profligacy, I think, in front of goal, they, at the Atletico in in Madrid, definitely they pressed Liverpool to the point where they didn't have any space. They suffocated their game, and they, you could clearly see that they frustrated this Liverpool side. But the second leg, they were perhaps, I think, they were a yard deeper. They were a yard off, and so their pressure, not being as intense, gives Liverpool that extra second, half second, they a pass. It gives them an extra yard to work with in the midfield. And I think you saw definitely with Liverpool's fullbacks, Robertson was key, the timing of his runs caused havoc on the right side, and you saw Llorente come on to try and, try and stifle that route. But as well, Chamberlain, I was confused as to when, why he was taken off, because that overload, overload on the right-hand side as well with Chamberlain, Salah, and Trent Alexander-Arnold was wreaking havoc again. And this Atletico side, I think Simeone summed it up nicely. They they benefited from Liverpool's missed chances, and Simeone said that Oblak is Atletico's Messi. Messi resolves games in the attacking area of the pitch, and Oblak resolves them in goal. Because he he was excellent and really stumped Liverpool at the final hurdle. Yeah, no, I I agree completely with you, but like, well, at first my my immediate reaction to the game was it was a tale of two goalkeepers um, because Oblak was brilliant and Adrian wasn't brilliant but I think that's been really harsh on Adrian he made mistakes yes but going forward Liverpool had 16 attempts and only scored two goals so you do have to ask questions of their attack as well as their defence because they missed a number of guilt-edged opportunities and I think you know the kind of the criticism of Adrian yes it is justified but you know you also have to criticise Liverpool's attackers and, and, and they did let the side down as well uh, but yeah, but, but Jan Oblak, for me, I think he's the best goalkeeper in the world. And 
could he perhaps inspire if we get this far hypothetically could he inspire mm-hmm. this political side to, to the Champions League final or do you think that's a step too far at this point in time for this political side I think that there's, it's definitely possible and especially with the Champions League potentially being elongated and not knowing how, how these teams are going to look in a month or two's time it's possible and all black and the Atletico defence definitely have the potential to to become that solid defensive side that uh, that keeps everyone out. But having said that, we've still only really seen that one that one game in Madrid against Liverpool, perhaps the extra time as well, where they looked like the Atletico of old. And I think if they are to go further, they'll need to they'll need either Costa back to full fitness because he was without wanting to be too harsh, fairly useless in yes. that leg. Or Morata um, again back to full fitness because even though he misses a lot of chances, he gives them a lot going forward. So I'm saying, it's interesting what you're saying there on um, Diego Costa, but because he, he was very poor. But I I, I was listening to um, a podcast on I think it was maybe the day before the, the game at Anfield. and they were saying that Diego Costa I, I think perhaps he'd had surgery and he's now scared to go up and head the ball. Which for a player who is renowned for being this aggressive, kind of right in your face, really not so much really good in there, but it's an important part of his game as as a kind of um, muscly, kind of burly striker. If he's scared to go up and head the ball, that's a huge part of his game missing, surely. Yeah, hundred percent. I think Costa he went back to Atletico because he's a, the embodiment of what Simeone wants from his team and his players. Mm. But if he's not offering that anymore. It's hard to see a way that he should be in the team because physically he's not in the same place he was two, three years ago when he was one of the best strikers in the world. Absolutely. And yeah, he's just, he's not, he hasn't been the same player he was for a good season or two. So sadly, I think it might be the end of him at the top level. Yeah. Um, Mike, quick, were you going to question there, Mike? Yeah, I was just going to ask him. I'll, my observation of the two games, one of the most interesting comparisons was that in front of their own fans, Atletico were much ha- more happy to play sort of Simeone's gamesmanship and stuff in the first game rather than the second, where in the second there was more against, you know, do what we can to get through. Uh, obviously, tactically, they're very well set up. And, but they did, well, they were well set up. Well, I wouldn't say very well because they did concede a lot of chances. So, you know, monumental effort to go through. Um is that maybe something they've got to imp- improve away from home? You know, it's not really the football inside of the game, but obviously it cost them at Juventus last season um, as well. Do you think they need to maybe get back to that sort of nasty, get that nasty streak in them on a more consistent basis as well as being more consistent uh, with the ball at the feet? 100%. Yeah, I think, yeah, they've not quite got the same character or profile that they, that they did when they had a team full of Godin, Miranda, Gabby, particularly in the middle of the park as well. He, for all his flaws and maybe not the technically the best midfielder in the world, he added that bite and that attitude as to go with Costa. He had the likes of Christian Rodriguez, a fullback player as well, and early Simeone sides, another Uruguayan who, who just added that bite and that complete stubbornness to play against the sort of stubbornness that makes Atletico a horrible team to come up against as a, as Liverpool found in the first leg. Yeah. That's... For me, it was a, a fascinating game of football and I, I just think 
Um, a quick word to add on on just how good an achievement it was from Simeone's Atletico. Um, Liverpool, that was the first time that Liverpool had, had gone out at the last 16 of the Champions League since 2006, since they went out to Benfica. And that was also as the reigning champions of Europe after lifting the trophy in 2005. And that was at this season's uh, final destination, Istanbul, of course. So it's, it's almost like Liverpool have gone full circle there um, and, and winning the Champions League once again. But yeah, I mean, brilliant achievement from Atletico Madrid and a really uh, captivating performance from them. Uh, Barlow, in La Liga, there was the matter, the significant matter of an El Clasico. What did you make of that? Yeah, it feels like a lifetime ago now, obviously, in in hindsight. But it was it was an interesting game. It was a bizarre game to watch. Again, sort of, it was a game of two halves in the fact that Barca were sort of marginally the better team for about 55 minutes and created quite a few quite a few good chances but failed to take them. Courtois made some big saves. And then there, there was two big points of inflection for me in the match. One was Isco's shot in about, I think it was about the 56th minute. And from there, everything turned. Real Madrid sort of got their confidence back, it seems, and they pressed higher. They, they prevented Barcelona from playing out the back, which really, since then, they, they really struggled to get into the game after that. Um, and so that is cool shot, gave them a bit of confidence, fantastic save from Stegen. But from that point on, Real Madrid dominated and just looked, frankly, more powerful and sharper than Barca at that point. But there was also Martin Braithwaite. Uh, their miracle signing came on to, to save the day in about the 67th minute. It was just before the Vinicius goal. And he went through one-on-one. It was a tight angle, but had a big chance to score. And having beat Marcelo for pace, he his, his shot was saved by Courtois. And then mere 90 seconds, two minutes later, it was he who failed to track Vinicius in behind. Vinicius gets in behind, and obviously the rest is history. Deflected shot, PK. And th- those two points in the game were crucial for me. But I think the, the main conclusion that we can take from this was that neither of these two sides is at the, the heights that we're used to seeing them, and both are susceptible to dropping points anywhere, as we saw the following week with a cat- catastrophic performance at Betis from Real Madrid. And Barca, even though they won, they their fitness levels are uh, are what's really getting them because again they fell off after about 60 minutes they were decent not great but the better team for about 60 minutes against Sociedad at home somehow scraped a one 0 win after a messy penalty but they they are neither of these teams are are what we're used to seeing no uh, I think Michael am I correct in saying that Gerard Piquet said after the game that it was the worst Real Madrid side they'd, they'd ever faced or have I misremembered that. I think so. Um, it, it, it's interesting because the what you could say about Zidane and um, Setien is given they're both Zidane's not been back there long and Setien's obviously a new arrival is um, that with with everything that's going on, if they do have chance to get on the training field and stuff, there won't be any spotlight on them. And it'll be such a rare occasion that a manager of one of these teams might get a chance to work with teams, um, you know, a lot. To get their philosophies and ideologies across um, over the next few months, and that could be a really interesting factor going forwards to see yeah. how things come out following all this, because some might come back completely revitalised, and if there was inspiration, they need to take it from it. Could be from how drab um, 
the teams were in comparison to you know their former selves. Yeah, um, Barlow, you you're obviously a big Barcelona fan. Do you long term see Kike Setien working out, or do you think that what we've seen so far um, from or yeah, from what we've seen so far, there just hasn't been enough there to suggest that he he can really get the best out of this Barcelona team. I think it's Setien, if he's given the tools, he has the potential to be successful. He's definitely improved Barcelona's overall play, but their game management and, well, frankly, the results have fallen off since Valverde went. I think, to be honest, no, it's impossible to see any sort of long-term or sustained success at Barcelona without the board or the sporting directors either changing or improving their planning process because since Luis Enrique maybe not, no Barca manager has had the tools in my opinion to A, play the way that they want to with an attacking pressing style of football and B, win the Champions League and so until until that changes I think it's impossible to to judge these managers fairly really to be honest uh, So having looked at one end of the table um Points going on up there, and it's, if the La Liga season does reconvene, when it does reconvene, um, it'll be interesting to see just what the impact of this kind of prolonged break w- w- will be. Because naturally, some players might have taken their eye off the boil. Perhaps some players might have kind of who who were in red hot form before the suspension might come back and, and not be firing on all cylinders. But that's one of the table, but down at the other end of the table, it's a really interesting relegation battle this year, isn't it, Barlow? Yeah, it's it's sort of been stop, stops and starts. I think there's a lot of teams that have, have either changed managers, lost or gained players that have changed their seasons around. I mean, Leganes, we know their problems that they've had with basically being robbed of their two best strikers, but they came up with a huge, huge win against Villarreal away. Uh, nobody really saw coming, to be honest, and that's put them right back in, in amongst it. And then Espanyol, again, despite our, uh, uh, Raul Dusmas's impact, he's been phenomenal for them. He scored a lot of goals defensively and in terms of discipline. They've still not been able to put it together, and I think they're, they're really struggling. And again, Osasuna, who lost Chimi Avila, who was their main striker, fantastic wee player. Um, they've struggled a lot since since he's uh, been injured, but now they've they got a big win away from home again before the break, and so it's it's very much up in the air because again, there's not a lot of teams that are either in form or look convincingly good. Yeah. So it's it's yeah, it's up in the air. It's it's very hard to predict, but it will be fascinating to see the uh, to see the conclusion of the table. Yes, uh, I mean. Do, do you want to say a quick word on uh, the impact of the coronavirus on La Liga and, and the potential um, routes that might be taken, or, or are you coronavirus chatted out, uh, Barlow? Yeah, well, I, I'm definitely coronaed out, but at the same time, um, it's it's worth mentioning that it's a similar yeah. situation to Italy in that they had. They had sort of four solutions on the table. One of them was to to end it as it is. One of them was to just have the results from the first round of games as a 
season in Spain has played, everyone plays each other once and then everyone plays each other once again in the second half of the season. There's also the option to have a mini-tournament to decide who won the title. Or I think the the most likely solution will be to delay um, the season until until it can feasibly be played out again. And Tebas, who's the president of La Liga, came out and said on the radio, I think it was last night, that his intention is for the league to be played out and that they will be doing everything possible to make sure that happens. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for that update. Barlow, uh, do, you, do you have anything further to add? Obviously, we've got the tantalising prospect of a, a Basque derby uh, in, in the Copa del Rey final, if that does indeed um, play out. Who, who would you fancy to win that one there? Or is it one of these ones that is so difficult to predict? And, and you know, two teams that are actually quite difficult to separate anyway, um, with the added element of a cup, cup final, a derby. Uh, and, and the other side of the country as well, down down in Sevilla. So, who, 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 if you had to pick one there, who who would you pick to prevail and why? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty mouth watering. If and when we do get football back, to know that we've got got that derby to look forward to. I think at the moment I would probably go with Sociedad, who not only are performing better in the table but are playing very good football and are very good to watch. I think it's it's an interesting one. A lot of Basque people have. Fans of either side have been saying that they're looking forward to the last final, but they're also, for uh, want of a better word, clapping it yeah. in, case, in case they lose. Um, Raul Garcia said, um, Atletico Bilbao's uh, sort of attacking midfielder striker said that they're incredibly nervous because Sociedad are favourites to win this and that they are a better team than them at the moment. Yeah. And I think, it, it, you know, the, the, both teams and their respective runs to the final have been. Really interesting to watch, and and, and as you said, Barlow Sociedad are fast, fascinating to watch. They they play a really attractive blend of football, and they have a number of exciting players. Uh, Alexander Odegaard, obviously at Sociedad just now, um, I, and and yeah, you, you look at the squad that they have, um, and and the players available to them, and you know it, it'll make for an exciting game. And Atletico Bilbao have you know that kind of solid defensive base that I just think are absolutely brilliant and. So uh, maybe the stats won't back that up, but I think they're they're defend they're defending the goalkeeper when you watch them. I'm, all, I'm always impressed with them. So yeah, no, I, if and when, as you say, Barrow football returns, that that's that's one of the games that I'm particularly looking forward to. Do you have anything else to to add on Spanish football before we move on? No, uh, I think that's all from me. But um, yeah, hopefully it comes back soon because uh, I'm definitely getting withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure, it is. As we said earlier, like, football is a, a release from the stresses of, of, of daily lives. Uh, and it gives us something to talk about that isn't coronavirus, which seems to be all that we are uh, talking about, talking about uh, these days. And, 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 you know, when, if and when we do eventually overcome, uh, you know, this current situation, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll uh, have plenty of interesting stories to tell. Um, so... Yeah, sorry. On the plus, on the plus side, nobody's mentioned Brexit for about two months. Yeah, uh, well, it has given us, <laughs> has allowed us to to forget that elephant, that huge and, and ugly elephant in the room. But we will move on if we have nothing further to add on Spanish football, and we'll have a look at French football and PSG finally delivering on the big European stage. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
So to French football, and before I speak about PSG's impressive performance against Dortmund when they finally delivered on the big European stage, uh, I think just a quick word on the response of the LFP, that's the French uh, football authority charged with kind of overseeing the the, the various leagues in, in France. Um, their response has, has been that they will look to play the season to a close when it does eventually reconvene. It's looking like it's going to be the middle of April at the earliest before the league does reconvene. France is obviously in quite a severe lockdown. I was speaking to my friend Yasser Razouk, who is studying out in Strasbourg just now, and he was saying, you know, the place is in total lockdown. He needs to take a form out with him when he, he leaves his flat, uh, and he says the place is eerily quiet. Um, and, and, and arguably, that's it. we'll be seeing something similar um, in the next few days in the United Kingdom. Um, perhaps by the time you're listening to this, we'll already be in that position. So if we are, then hopefully, you know, listening to our dulcet tones has, has cheered you up somewhat. But yes, I mean, the position in France is that they, they will be looking to play the season to a close. Certainly, Jean-Michel Orlas, the, the president of Olympique Lyonnais, had said that you know the season should just be voided and, and they should go back to, to last season's standings and use last season's standings as the basis for European qualification next season. Um, but I would highlight that he, he's bound to say that, given that Lyon are having their worst season domestically since 1996-97. Um, quite understandably, that, that observation, that um, argument from Olas was, was met with disdain from you know almost the entirety of the rest of the league. Um, quite a number of uh, other presidents have, have scorned at his suggestion uh, and, and it doesn't look like that will will be the case. It looks like the season is going to be played to a close if and when the season does. We keep, I know we keep saying that phrase, if and when, but it's all hypothetical. No one really knows what path the coronavirus is going to take and just when leagues will be um, able to reconvene um, and, and able to restart again, if, if at all. Um, but yeah... Moving to kind of more positive news, I suppose Paris Saint-Germain delivered a really, and it's my favourite description for for performances like this, but it was a mature performance. Uh, They were probably fancying their chances, having grabbed the away goal um, at the Signal Iduna Park, um, having put in a decent enough performance in the away leg. They came to the Parc des Princes and put in a really good performance Neymar with the most atypical Neymar goal I think you'll ever see. A diving header at the back post from a corner. Not very Neymar at all, but you know, he took it well. The defending left a lot to be desired. And we raised the issue of Dortmund's, you know, um naive defence and, and how that was evident at stages in the in the first leg. Uh, and 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 that was there for all to see in the second leg with that first goal from Neymar and then just before half-time, Juan Bernal, of course, you know, being at Valencia and then Bayern Munich um, with a really kind of delicate finish to uh, put PSG 2-0 to, to the good. Uh, and and really, that after that, PSG saw out the game remarkably well. It was a very professional performance on, on the field, anyway, professional. I'm going to speak about the kind of lack of professionalism with regards to mocking young Erling Haaland's celebration. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But the performance from PSG was one that I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for. 
I would note that um, PSG have now scored at least one goal in each of their last 32 UEFA Champions League matches, and that's too short of Real Madrid's competition record, which was set between May 2011 and April 2014. So going forward, they're very good. But also at the back this season, PSG have kept six clean sheets in eight Champions League games, which for a team like when you think about it, is, is often you know their ability to achieve that balance between defence and attack. That ability is often questioned. Um, but you know, they shut out a Dortmund side featuring Jaden Sancho, Thorgan Hazard and Erling Haaland, arguably one of the most exciting front lines and most devastating front lines um, in world football at this point in time. It's arguably up there with the um, the Liverpool front line, certainly in terms of, of just how exciting they are to watch. So it was a really mature performance from PSG. Neymar in particular, um, he has not lost one of his 28 home Champions League matches, um, be that for Barcelona or PSG. Uh, he's won 25 and he's drawn three. And that, for me, is is quite a remarkable statistic. He just loves the Champions League and he just always seems to be in the mood. And for those perhaps maybe questioning his desire and his commitment to the capital side, uh, his reaction, I don't know if you've seen it, guys, but his, his celebration with... Thiago Silva, who was in the stands watching the game, was really quite emotive. And you could see there that this meant a lot to him. Um, he was absolutely delighted to be progressing. And on the field, PSG, certainly when it came to the actual football, answered a lot of questions and, and, and responded to a lot of their critics. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and at this point in time, um, you know, Michael's just dropped a little message in the group chat. I'm trying not to laugh. We'll, we'll, we'll remain professional um, Michael, we won't we won't speak about about any of that sort. So we will not um, speak no, to. No. Oh, 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 really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to say what it is that, that you you have just said in the group chat there. Um, but I, you know, when we talk about um, Neymar, perhaps maybe um, yeah, maybe people will know just, what we're talking about. Applauding this professionalism. I yeah, think. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, in, in line with yours and all of the, all of this right now. <laughs> a, a, quick, uh, a quick search on Twitter for Neymar will reveal all. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, he yeah he he's a character uh, and arguably um, the the most flamboyant Brazilian character since a certain Ronaldinho, who's also been in the news, and we could speak about him um, for hours in terms of the situation that he now finds himself in. But we won't. Um, I would really advise to go and kind of, there's a really good um, Football Today podcast episode on Ronaldinho and why he's in a Paraguayan prison. Do go and listen to that. But getting back to PSG uh, and their achievements, football, from the football side of things, brilliant, but I, I was a little bit disappointed with their reaction to Erling Haaland. Um, obviously, the kind of zen celebration which he pulled out uh, in the first leg after you know after his brilliant brace. Um, the PSG players then re- mock him on the field and then they do it again. Um, and the changing room, and it was almost like when um, I heard somebody, you know, compare it to that situation where someone tells a joke and everyone hears it and no one laughs because it's just not funny. And then they do it again. And then someone says, something, yeah, we, we heard it the first time and it was just absolutely dreadful patter. That was kind of what that was like. Um, and I saw a tweet as well saying that Ellen Harland looks like the sort of kind of um, determined individual who will, you know, remember that for the rest of his career. And whenever he plays against PSG or any of those players, he will revel in scoring a goal against them. So, I mean, PSG have apparently made a rod for their own kind of, a Norwegian-shaped rod for, for their own back. But 
take nothing away from the fact that PSG are in the quarter-final. Take nothing away from the fact that they will now fancy their chances if they can get a favourable draw in the next round. You know, against an Atalanta or a Leipzig, they will surely fancy their chances in the next round. Even against an Atletico Madrid, they would probably uh, fancy their chances. But, yeah, I mean, on, on, on the field, brilliant, very composed, very mature. And Thomas Tuchel has, um, along with his players, answered a lot of critics. I think you know, we're running short on time. I know we haven't spoken about French football in, in detail, but it was kind of along with the Italian League, one of the first to kind of start to, um, you know, postpone games or, you know, say go behind closed doors and then suspend suspend the league. Uh, and really, all, all I would say is that, you know, it's, we, we, we will keep producing the podcast. We will keep putting content out there. You know, arguably between now and the next episode, realistically, I don't think any football will be played. Um, perhaps only football will be the kind of virtual football that you see on Bet365 that some people are having to turn to to plug that football-shaped gap. But, um, or, you know, the Russian leagues and the, and the Turkish leagues um, are perhaps still insisting uh, on, on carrying on for, for whatever reason. Um, but... You know, realistically, we're not going to see an awful lot of football between now and the next episode. So we're, we're thinking about ideas in terms of what we can we can bring to you. We're thinking about kind of features that we can do. Um, and, and what I will say is that the, the podcast won't stop. Um, that sounds quite kind of uh, very grandiose and very kind of symbolic. No, it's not in that way, but it's just because it is, it is a kind of release from, you know, the, the stresses of, of day-to-day life. And it does give us a chance to kind of just um, try and take a breather from, from what is you know, relentless reporting of, of a really serious um, and arguably unprecedented situation. Paolo, it's been brilliant having you on. Safe journey back on, on Sunday. Hopefully they don't turn you away at, at the border. Um, if they do, then, well, I, <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what you're going to do. I mean, yeah, but um, no, safe journey back. Stay, stay safe and stay healthy. And, and um, the same to you, Michael, as well. Uh, are you going to be working from home soon, do you think, Michael? Yeah, well, I don't know. It'll be a matter of days um, before we yeah. find out what's the case. It, it, it's kind of just, I don't know whether we're going to be responsive to government measures or whatnot, but um, yeah. it seems a natural course of action for everyone in the coming future. So, uh, yeah, I'd suspect so. Well... Yeah, Barlow, when, uh, when you're back, I would say we would meet up for, for a coffee, but I don't think that's going to be an option for the foreseeable future. Um, so once once this, uh, you know, you know if if and when uh, the situation does, um, you know, we, we do, you know, prevail over the situation, um, we'll get we'll get a wee catch up in person instead of over a a, a Skype line um, from one side of the world to to the other. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to a catch-up. I'm looking forward to uh, to uh, calling into the podcast from my house as opposed to a hospital. Yeah, you'll need to. Yeah, and, and a catch-up with the the FC Soul Boys. Um, yeah, that that will be good to see to see James, Colin, Scott, Robbie, uh, Sammy, and all, all all the rest of them um, as well. I'm sure they'll be they'll be they'll be um, crossing their fingers for your safe return as well on Sunday. Um, if, if we don't have anything else to add, I think perhaps this represents the, the best moment perhaps to, to, to draw things to a close. 
what I would say is, you know, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Barlow, once again for your brilliant contributions and your knowledgeable ways. It is appreciated, and I'm sure the listeners as well will be um, hopefully just that little bit more informed now as well um, compared to when they tuned in at the start of the episode. Um, what I would say to everyone listening is stay safe, stay healthy, and, you know, if we do go into lockdown, then, you know, keep phoning people. Um, you know, human interaction is what, at the end of the day, keeps us going. It's human nature to, to interact, and obviously we won't be able to do that in person, but do do keep chatting, and, and the three of us are always um, willing to listen to people if, you know, people are struggling with, with loneliness or whatever, or mental health then do because it will be a difficult time um and yeah no do but, but do keep do keep safe do keep healthy and do put the i suppose the, the health of others um first along with your own health as well and, and don't do anything kind of socially irresponsible shall we say yeah but yeah on that rather um, serious note and i think we did have to approach this episode with the correct level of tact and diplomacy um on that serious note Thank you for listening. Thank you, Barlow. Thank you, Michael, and good night.